If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. We are going to continue our series on the Word of God and some of its important aspects that we need to keep fresh in our mind as Christians because this is one of the greatest resources we have, probably apart from the Holy Spirit Himself. The Word of God works with the Holy Spirit, and in concert, they are our greatest ammunition and our greatest resource in the world in order to live lives that bring glory to God. You know, there are a lot of things we trust in, in this life. Sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll leave here after church and we'll get into our car and we'll think to ourselves as we put the key into the ignition, the car is going to start. Unless, of course, your car is out of repair and then you hope it starts. But for the most part, we, just, we think that's what's going to happen. At home, when we turn on the faucet, we're pretty certain that water's going to come out. I mean, it does every other day. But there have been times when cars do not start and water does not come out. There are not very many things that are certain in this world. You know, you think, well, I am going to go home after church, but your home might not be there. There have people who have gone home from church to find their home burnt to the ground. And there are so many uncertainties in this world. And even though things are really reliable, there are really very, very few absolutely certain things. And so today, what we want to look at is something that you have in your possession which is absolutely certain. And that is, of course, the Word of God. Everything God wants us to know is in this book. And that is comforting to know. But it's a pretty big book. And even after studying it a whole lifetime, you're still learning things that God wants you to know. And being a Christian means learning to trust and live by what the Bible says. To learn how to trust in this book because... It's not just a book, but it is the Word of God. Just as if Jesus were to come now in His second coming glory and speak, this book is the same thing. It is God speaking. When you read this book, God speaks. And we need to think about that. We need to keep that in mind. And today we are going to look at Another aspect of God's Word, and that the Bible, above anything else, is unfordable. Now let me just give you a little bit of background about Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. He prophesied from about 740 to 680 B.C. during the reign of several kings. He is the prophet who is in kind of the royal court of of the kings. Uh, Other prophets would prophesy to the commoners, but he is right up there with the kings. He is kind of the royal prophet. And Isaiah is at a very perilous time. During his lifetime, Assyria, which was the ruling power then, took captive the ten northern tribes and in the words of Jeremiah, plowed them under. They were gone. And the only major tribe that was left was Judah, in the south. And Isaiah is a prophet to 
that nation Judah, and he's trying to encourage them to repent of their sins. Because what was going on then is Israel was just, they had sinned and sinned and sinned, and if it wasn't for just a couple good kings, they would have been wiped out long ago. But because of their couple good kings, Isaiah is able to prophesy to a nation that still exists. But there is danger looming on the horizon because God has also prophesied through Isaiah that there will come a day when Babylon, who was then the kind of uh, new world power rising, would take them captive because of their sin. Now, you need to understand as you understand the context just how these people were thinking in their day. I mean, imagine right now our army uh, in America being weak. And let's just say that um, Canada was now the superpower of the world. And we had a weak military. We were running out of food. Our crop production was down. Immorality was just ten times worse than it is today, if you can imagine that. And all of these pressures are coming down, and you know that at any moment, Canada could come down, let's say, and just wipe us out. Well, that's how it is with Israel. Here they are, uh, barely surviving in Assyria, this huge world power, which has wiped out anything that has come against it, is coming against Israel. Not only that, this prophet keeps saying, repent, because judgment's coming, repent, because judgment's coming. And the people of Israel are, are fearful. Uh, they're, they're thinking to themselves, man, you know, what, what are we going to do? I mean, every day it's just, it could be destruction. But it's amazing how people are able to ignore the obvious. How they're able to just continue on day after day thinking, oh, well, you know, just because every single other nation that Assyria has come up against has fallen, that doesn't mean our nation will also. Well, in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah is kind of broken up into three chunks. Chapters 1 through 35 are judgment. Chapters 36 through 37 are kind of a, um, or 39 are kind of a historical um, uh, synopsis of the reign of Hezekiah. And then chapters 40 through 66 all talk about God's comfort to the people Israel. How he would bring to them deliverance. How he would bring to them a deliverer. And how he would promise this great future blessing. And in the section dealing with the deliverer in chapters 58, or actually chapters 49 through 57, we have our text today. And a lot of times we've, re we've heard this verse that uh, we're going to camp on mostly today, and we think to ourselves, oh yeah, that's talking about how God's word does not come back void. But usually people don't know the context of this passage, and when you don't understand the context, you don't understand the meaning of the verse. And so what we're going to do is look at Isaiah 55, and I just want to summarize what is happening in verses 1 through 5. God promises this abundant food. He promises to deliver them. He promises that if they would just come to him and repent, he would save them. But remember, Israel has been sinning against God for hundreds of years. 
And they are having problems thinking that God could actually abundantly pardon them since they are such major sinners. Now, just imagine right now you have this friend and you reject him. You lie to him, you steal from him, you um, slander him, you don't love him, but he still calls you a friend. And then one day, these thugs show up to your house and they say, hi, your friend sent us. And you're wondering, hmm, um, you know, I've really treated this person in a terrible way, but if he still calls me his friends, finally, and these thugs beat you up. They break your arms and legs. And now you're in the hospital. And while you're recovering from this severe beating, you get a call from this person who hired the thugs, and he says, I want to be reconciled. I want to be your friend. You want to make up? You want to get right? What would be your response? No way! You can talk to my lawyers. And you reject him. Because of what he's done to you, even though you did treated him wrong at the beginning, he kind of did it worse to you, and so now you really hate him. And so then he just lights your house on fire. He poisons your cat and shoots your dog. He puts a full-page advertisement in the paper explaining all of your sins. And now you have no home. You have no possessions. You have no reputation. And this person calls you up and says, let's be friends. Now you'd be thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? This is exactly what is going on in this text. God has extended salvation to Israel And they have rejected him. They have slandered him. They have blasphemed him. And so he has sent plague. He has sent armies. He has sent all of these curses upon them. And they've been all wiped out in the hospital, so to speak. And God sends another prophet and says, Hey, let's be reconciled. And Israel's thinking, No way. And so then he sends more trials. Worse still, he wipes out ten of the tribes. And now this looming threat is on the horizon. And God extends this incredibly gracious invitation to them to be saved. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. And I just want to read to you what God is telling them in this text. Very incredible things. Notice what he says here in verse 1 of 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without costs. Just take anything you want. A free offer of blessing. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. No stipulation there. Just come. 
Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Just come. Let's be friends. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then we come to our text. And in this text we are going to learn four important truths. One, your ways and thoughts are not God's. Two, the degree to which your ways and thoughts are not God's. Three, the reliability of your Bible is illustrated. And four, the facts, why you can trust God's ways and thoughts. Notice what verse 8 says as we look at your ways and thoughts are not God. He says, for. And the reason he says for there is because he wants you to remember what has just come proceeding. Now, you need to remember their mindset. They hate God. They're in rebellion against God. God has sent all these plagues and curses and upon them. And now he's saying, hey, abundant pardon, free grace, come to me. I'll give you blessing. I will forgive you. Just repent. Just come to me. Come on. Salvation's here for free. And they're thinking, no way. So he says, for. And the reason he says for is because he is now going to argue why they can believe this promise, which is too good to be true. And you know that when something is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And notice what he says here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Think about that. God's ways and His thoughts are not yours. The Hebrew structure in verse 8 is emphatic. God is saying, my ways and thoughts are nothing at all like your ways and thoughts. We are so self-serving and marinated in sin that an offer like this just seems like a fairy tale. How could a holy God... A just God who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished now offer this blanket, gracious, merciful offer of salvation to a bunch of sin-cursed, pea-brain rebels. That's interesting, isn't it? And he knows what they're thinking. No way, this is too good to be true. So he tells them, my thoughts and ways are not Yours. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11? Let me just read this to you. He said this, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were very good and holy, no, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is interesting, isn't it? Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were really good, no, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having received reconciliation, we shall be saved by His life. 
Here he says, while you were enemies, while you were sinners, that people is when God sent his son to die for you. Why? To demonstrate the severity and violence of his love for you. And that is exactly what this text is talking about in Isaiah 55. God is saying, hey, listen, don't have a hard time believing this. If you think this plan is inconceivable, if you think this is just so far-fetched, it is. Because this is nothing that any man would ever attempt to do. No man would ever say, oh, hey, now that you've sinned against me, now that you've broken my arms and legs and burnt my house down and shot my dog and poisoned my cat and slandered me, now... I want to be reconciled to you. Men do not think that way, but God does. He thinks that way about you, and he thinks that way about me. And this, people, is an argument for the veracity of the scriptures. Who alone would conceive of such an inconceivable plan? That this holy person who, who, who has all power, I mean, he can just wipe us out, right? He could wipe us out and create some new people, better than us, very easily. But no, he doesn't. He finds pleasure in saving his enemies and those who continually sin against him. And this is why he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. Don't insult God by comparing his thoughts with yours, because they are not. The only time your thoughts will ever come in line with God's thoughts is when you saturate yourself in this book. And then you begin to think a little bit like God. But it'll always be jaded. And this is why we tell you to read your Bible and study your Bible and know your Bible. Why? Because in the world, you have all of this uh, trash being pumped into you on the radio and media and TV and everywhere you go. There's just garbage. There is lies. There is deception. There is wickedness. And if you don't keep your heart focused on this book, then you'll be in trouble. Because you will have worldly thoughts and you won't understand why God is doing things. Now, you ask yourself, well, just how far are God's thoughts different from mine? And he tells us the degree to which your ways and thoughts are not God's. Look at verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, the heavens referred to here are would be the equivalent of what we would understand as the universe. You know, that vast amount of space out there that uh, seems to go on forever. Now, I did some research, and I found out that, you know, I wanted to know just how big it is out there. And this is what I discovered. The universe is this huge mass, which in the being of God is like this little tiny speck. And in that little speck, which we call the universe, there are other little tinier clusters of light. And those tiny little groups of light we call galaxies. And we live in one of the smaller galaxies, the Milky Way. There are some galaxies which are much, much bigger, like the Andromeda galaxy. And our galaxy supposedly is about 100,000 light years across. Now, a light year is the distance that one can travel going 186,000 miles per second. 
At that speed, you could go to the sun and back in about, you know, 8 minutes, 20 seconds. And you could go to the moon and back in about 3 seconds. So our little galaxy, if you traveled 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 years, you would be able to just cross our galaxy. Now, we are talking about other galaxies. And the whole point here is this. The universe is big. It's huge. I mean, some scientists think that there are stars out there that are 10 billion light years away. Huge stars they can see with big telescopes. That's a long way out there, people. Now, think about this. You ask yourself, just how far are God's ways apart from yours? As high as the heavens are above the earth. You get the picture? Your thoughts and your ways don't even come close to God's thoughts and God's ways. They don't even approach. So don't even think that your your thoughts and your ways are even going to be anywhere near God's. They are not. And the whole point he's making here is don't even, don't even go there. Don't even go there because this is my, my thoughts are like the heavens above the earth to you. And they are not emphatically your thoughts and ways. Now, look at verse 10. He goes on to say, For as the rain and snow come down from the earth and do not return there without watering the earth and make it barren sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. Now, just stop there. Here he now is now giving the reliability of your Bible, the reliability of his word. How reliable is it? Well, the Jews lived in a culture where it was desert. I mean, you know, it was desert there. And if you've ever gone there, it's, it's pretty parched. It used to have a lot of trees before God cursed it. I mean, if you go back, you know, like in Solomon's time and before, there was a lot more trees and things there. But the wars, they've all been cut down. Um, I remember being in, in the land of Israel in May and went down to Jericho when it was only 116 degrees. It's hot there. And one thing every Jew knew is that water was just vitally important. And whenever it would rain, just the whole land would turn green and it would just thrive and it would just flourish. And here he says, he says, listen, this is what my word's like. For as the rain and snow come down out of heaven, which is just something that happens every year. And do not return there without watering the earth, which is normal. And making it barren sprout, which is normal and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. He's saying, listen, you know how when it rains, how it produces vegetation so you can eat? Yeah, that is certain, right? I mean, that happens every year, right? Yeah, well, let me tell you, my word is like that, but even more so. Just as you rely upon water raining and producing vegetation, my word is more certain. That's what he's saying with that little illustration there. He wants us to know that his word is absolutely certain and that there is nothing that we can do or say or believe in that is more reliable than this word of his, the Bible, which we all have. And then he says this. Look at the end of verse 11. We'll read the whole thing again. He says... So 
will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The illustration in verse 10 feeds this statement here, and this is kind of the culmination of the text. God is saying, my word, which is basically the verbal representation of my nature, my word does not return without accomplishing what I want it to accomplish. And people, this is a very simple truth to understand, but a very difficult truth to apply. My word, which goes forth, God says, from my mouth, might be substituted for just Bible. The Bible. You remember we learned last week in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. And we learned in 2 Peter chapter 1 that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so this book is the Word of God. And it is absolutely certain, and it is unthwartable. That means that when it gives you a promise, you can believe it. When it gives you a promise, you can trust in it. You know, a lot of people just torture themselves on the rack of their own griefs when it comes to making decisions. And this amazes me. Especially because the scriptures are so clear. You remember what Micah 6.8 says? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Well, he requires you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me tell you what God wants you to do. First, God wants you to do what is just, that's obey Him. Secondly, God wants you to be kind, that is, love your neighbor as yourself. And third, God wants you to be humble. If you are doing those three things, you can do anything you want and be in the will of God. It's as simple as that. If you are doing those three things, obeying God's word, loving your neighbor... And being humble, you can do anything you want. You can go to this college or this college, buy this car or that car, you know, shop at Ralph's or shop at wherever. (laughs) Anything you want. Why? Because if you're doing those things, you're doing everything God has told you to do. And therefore, everything else you are free to do. He gives you freedom to choose what college you're going to go to or what car to buy. So what do we learn from this text? Let me just give you some practical things that you can take home with you today. The first, you need to read, study, obey, share God's word with other people. This is what we're about here. This is the word that saves people. This is the word that transforms people. This is the word that encourages people. This is the word which gives you peace. This is the word that God has given us, which is unfordable. Every promise will come true. Oh, it will not always come true like you think it will come true, but when that happens, you remember your ways are not God's ways. And if you can't remember just how far that is, just think of how far the universe goes on, and there's a greater distance between what God thinks and what you think. 
Secondly, you need to trust God's word even though you don't see results or even when you don't think it tells you to do something that is right. So often when we read the scriptures, we think, well, that's what God's word says, but man, that, that seems kind of harsh. That doesn't seem like it fits in with Zig Ziglar or Dale Carnegie or how to win friends and influence people. You know, whitewashed sepulchers, you brood of vipers. That's not, is that loving? You see in the scriptures things where you think, oh no. <laughs> Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Are you sure? I mean, one of the most gruesome things I have to do, and uh, any of the elders will tell you this, is, is when you get to confront people about their sin. Mm. But, you know, if you saw your child running towards this hot oven, you wouldn't say, oh, I don't want to tell him no, because uh, it might hurt his ego. He might cry if I restrained him from burning his hands. No. And when you see people running towards the fire of hell or the consequences of sin, you don't say, well, I just don't want to offend them. Man, you, you get out the faithful wounds. And remember that enemies are deceitful and give kisses but no fine counsel. When you are tempted to doubt God, when, you, when you're thinking, well, I don't know if God is right in this. I mean, I know what it says. You remember your thoughts and ways are not God's. And fourth, when you read things in your Bible that don't make sense, when you just can't figure out or understand why would God say something he said or promise something he would promise or do something he would do, be still and know that he is God and you are not. We live in a man-centered world, a world that is concerned with what men think and want and say. But as Christians, we go to this book because we are concerned with what God thinks, what God wants, and what God says. And the reason we can trust this book is because it's unthwartable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we are able to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. May each person leave here today with renewed confidence in your word. And Father, we thank you that you have given us something which is sure that will not return without accomplishing all you have desired. We thank you and praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.